Welcome to Wood Talk for woodworkers by woodworkers. Now, here are three guys who like to use a lot of words yet say nothing at all Mark, Matt, and Shannon. What's up, everybody? It's Wood Talk number 191 for July 21st, 2014. On today's show, we're talking about ammonia fuming, pre finishing rituals, plywood in the hand tool shop, and how flat is flat enough. And let's uh, take a moment to thank some of the folks who support us with a donation, either one time or recurring donations. I'd like to thank Vic H., Steve C., Bill G., and David D. Thank you so much, guys. We really appreciate that support. And if you want to help out, you can too. Just go to woodtalkshow.com, look over in that left-hand column, and you'll see a couple of links there that will show you exactly what you need to do. And we certainly appreciate that support. So, gentlemen, let's uh, let's talk about what's on the bench. It's been a while. We've uh, we're doing that summer thing where we insert a couple of uh, pre-recorded shows, so we don't have any <laughs> uh, any dead weeks if possible. So, uh, feels like it's been forever since we did an actual show. Yes, yeah, uh, way beyond it. In fact, once again, while I was kicking back, and I'll talk more about this when I get to my portion of the bench, I was thinking, you know, summer's off is really nice. And <laughs> yeah. I bet some people are like, oh, thank God, no more chortling. <laughs> I know, no more wood talk. It's, it, it's actually a good thing, therapeutic. And then they realize, though, they're like, you know, I thought I hated it, but now I like it and I miss these guys. So maybe they're coming back at this point. They, they get the they, shakes. That's what they is. do. That's what I was just thinking of the same thing. They get the chortle shakes. Get a little chortle in your veins. Chortle and you shakes. just <laughs> There you go. There's the title of the show. High calorie Right off the bat. Shake. All right. Let's move into to, uh, what's on the bench. And I'll go first. And to be honest, I don't have a whole lot to talk about. I finished up the Morris chair, did the upholstery, and my mom's friend helped out with the cushions because I don't know how to sew. And uh, so now I actually do have the chair moved into the bedroom and it has officially become, and this is kind of a high status in the Spagnola house. It's officially my comic book reading chair now. Whoa. It's kind of a big deal around here. So I think you should just change it from Morris chair to comic book reading chair. I think more people would be like, what? I'm so there. Let's do this. We would definitely get a lot more subscribers that way. Was it, was in your comic book reading chair porcelain previously? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. Did you have problems with your feet going that down after true. a while? That is true. <laughs> that is about where half of the comics get read, to be frank. Um, but yeah, so it's it's now sitting there. It looks good. I'm happy with the finish. Uh, everything looks nice. The cushions are nice and comfortable. Uh, you know, it's, it's wooden handles, like wooden, um, not handles, uh, arms on the sides. That only gets so comfortable. You know, like unless it's sort of a, you know, like the sculpted rocker style arms where they're really, you make a lot of effort to contour it so it's even more comfortable. Well, yeah, these are, these are bowed, but it's still a piece of wood that's flat overall. So it's not, it's not quite as comfortable as, as like a leather recliner or something like that. So being realistic about it, it's uh, not the most comfortable chair ever. But as far as wood chairs go, it's pretty darn comfortable. I could spend quite a bit of time the, the in that really thing. Comfortable ones. Those aren't comic book chairs. Those are nap chairs. That's true. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. seen, and that's happened too. Like I'll be just reading a great comic, and I've heard for a lot of people say this about Wood Talk is they'll listen, and if they're in a slightly even like remotely comfortable situation, they just fall asleep. <laughs> You know, while they're listening, uh, hopefully or, not or while they're driving, not remotely comfortable position. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't want to talk about those. Um, so yeah, uh, once I finished up the chair, that was about it. Time to clean up the shop. And I've been focused on just some house stuff that's been overdue, moving the podcasting room to a different location and running some cat five or actually cat six, uh, through the attic. Uh, and you know what? In Arizona in the summer running wire through an attic, not the best idea. <laughs> 
Does it melt in your hands? Practically. And I melt, I I melt in my hands a little bit too. So, uh, but got that done yesterday and, um, and that's about it. So hopefully I can get, uh, I'm probably going to go into design mode for the next guild project and, uh, thinking about future. We've got the, the cancer charity build coming up soon. So I've got to design something for that. So I'll be uh, doing a little sketching for the next couple of weeks and then, uh, then it's back to the shop. Sounds like a great opportunity to get back into the comic book chair and yes. uh, just sit there with maybe your laptop, do a little sketching. and I could use a little of that, you know, and I need some time off. This 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 chair build at the end, guys, was nuts. Uh, like, I just packed so much into a short period of time just because I felt the whole production was getting a little long in the tooth and needed to end. Uh, and I went two videos a week for like the last month. And that was that was a, a pace that I don't recommend. Now, I have to tell you, over all the years that we've been doing the show together and have been friends, during this time period, it's probably like the one where I was reading the most into your emails that sounded a lot like, will you stop bugging me? I've got stuff to do. You sure it wasn't like, help me? You know, I'm please. sure there was that too, but I took it the other way because I don't want to get in the middle of your mess. Yeah. And you know what? I totally forgot. This kind of overshadows everything. I should have had this in the show notes. I went to Boston and was on Tommy Mac's uh, Rough Cut show, the PBS woodworking show. Oh, very cool. Now, you definitely have to go into details about that. Yeah, how, how can I not talk about that? Uh, say, we're going to get kickback if you don't. Yeah, so. <laughs> right. yeah, that's true. Um, you know what? I'll make it I'll make it quick. It was, I'll tell you what, doing what we do, filming ourselves, yet while we're by ourselves, over time, you kind of you kind of learn a lot about this stuff in terms of production and, and just working in front of a camera. So it actually, I was very pleasantly surprised at how well whatever skills I've attained over the years transferred over quite well. It was just getting used to there being someone putting makeup on my face uh which was a little odd and wearing a shirt do that now uh no well i did in one episode and i try not to talk about that one too much yeah i prefer that we don't talk about that one either i still have nightmares (laughs) not good memories on that one but uh but yeah the whole thing was really really cool i was i was excited about it uh tommy was great he was very hospitable made me feel real welcome uh we we did a project i didn't design it i sort of gave a very small amount of input to Eli and he designed it, but he was trying to design it in, in, in a way that would be something that I would have actually built. And he did a great job because it totally looks like something I would have built. Uh, so it was, it was a lot of fun. You got to do a lot of takes. That's a little bit different. There's a point where like the three of us would say, yep, good enough. Uh, <laughs> but a director is like, nope, let's do it again, just in case. And it's like, no, that doesn't exist in my shop. It's that's good. That's plenty. That's fine. So, um, so, but, so the project is an end board cutting or uh, end grain cutting board. Is that what it is? <laughs> yes, it's a classic. Uh, we'll be doing a Wood Whisperer classic today. <laughs> you know what's funny is when you talk about like some of the stuff that the background people are doing. I had something slightly similar, not quite to the extent that you did when I would do stuff with tool select. And there'd be one person for like each type of the thing, especially when it came to the audio. They're like, here, you're going to have to put this on. I'm like, I know how to do this. So like, uh-huh. And that's why your audio sounds the way it does. Not do it this way. (laughs) Shut up, internet boy. Um, Well, they're on the internet too. What I really want to know, I think the most important question is, is Mm -hmm. how was craft services? Well, Mm. uh, they went out and got lunch and brought it back. So I guess that's the the extent of it. It's not quite as, you know, PBS television isn't the the glamorous thing you might think it is. So it wasn't a uh, like immediately uh, like one of those omelet stations or you know like a rib station. I will have the uh, the wet rub and then they (laughs) they had a Dr Pepper in a cooler with no ice. So that's not to say that it wasn't cold. It was cold, but it was being kept in a cooler with no ice. Uh, not that that's good or bad, but that was the situation. You know, I think in Union, 
rules. That actually is uh, something that you could bring them up on. I could, yeah. Um, but it's awesome. So, you know, the thing is coming out in October, and I don't know the exact date yet. I don't know how all that works, but they're going to let me know. Um, had a great time. Tommy actually was really cool. Took me back to his house, had dinner uh, with, with him and his wife, met his dog and Murphy, that giant monster yes. of a dog. Murph, the dog's awesome. He is awesome like he's the size of a horse with just a lot of hair reminds me of jacks with a with a lot more hair um but yeah it was it was a blast guys i had a really really good time and and i find that now that i was hanging around tommy i start to say guys a lot more (laughs) i don't know if that's got something to do with it but kind of fast too (laughs) and that might that might be the case uh but really really a lot of fun so uh but that's me uh who's next shannon yep um, I'm, I've had a, a call it a window into the professional woodworkers life over the last week. Mm. I took on a, took on a commission and this is actually for a neighbor, <clears throat> a neighbor of my in-laws in Maine. You know, they've been remodeling this house with the intention of actually moving there full time. And so they're getting to know the neighbors and everything. And mm-hmm. somehow the conversation came up that I was a woodworker Oh, that boy. came them back to their place. I've built several pieces for them that they have in their in their um, what is now their vacation home. So that turned into commission, which was kind of cool. I mean, let's face it: this little island where they live is quite affluent, so it's a good demographic for custom furniture maker, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So it 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 should be kind of cool, but I do not see eye to eye at all with this woman. <laughs> <laughs> what she likes is what I hate. Wow. And, and what I like, she just like laughs at me. And, you know, it's one of those things that customers always write and everything and kind of I, I tried to position it such a way. And again, I'm doing this all over Skype because um, she's up in Maine and I'm down here in Maryland and trying to figure out what what she wants and kind of let her go first so that I'm not like I very quickly realize anything I suggest she's not going to like. So I need to let her go first. And What's, what's ending up, she wants a dining table and basically she just wants a picnic table. Like go to any park and you know, one of those picnic tables, you know, like two by six lumber with the boards just nailed on. That's what she wants in her formal dining room. So just go to Home Depot, pick one up, (laughs) throw a little stain on it. I'm not seeing a problem here, Shannon. (laughs) Well, part of me just keeps thinking, well, so you want a picnic table? No, 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 no. I don't want a picnic table. So then she starts sending me images of things from like... Her, what she considers to be like the ultimate in design style and quality furniture, crate and barrel. I was like, oh, oh good yeah. Lord. Sweet. And there it's oh, called a, Lord. it's called a picnic table. <laughs> right. So, you know, it, it's been, it's been interesting. Long story short, too late. I do believe I've come to a design that we all like. And it was a very interesting learning experience for me to, and, 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 the more I look at it, the more I'm excited. It's going to pose some challenges and things like that. The the cross legs I've got to make and the central trestle uh, mortise and everything. I posted an image of the SketchUp on my Facebook page last week sometime if anybody's curious. But it was interesting to see how tiny little changes like the thickness of a board here and the thickness of a board there can totally change the look. Mm-hmm. And how as a... I don't know, not to sound pompous, but as an artist, as a craftsman, how you can kind of add your own signature to things, how you can kind of put your mark on it, even though it's something that I would never build in a million years. Right. It's just not me at all. And and trying to get myself, you know, as 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 internet 
folks, we are kind of spoiled because we get to build whatever we want to build, right? You know, you know, if if you hate a design, you just don't build it. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to build that on the show because I'm not into don't it. Don't want to. As a professional, you have to build whatever the customers come to you, you know, and it was it was a, a window into that. But at the same time, it was an educational experience on how I can get myself excited about a design that I just would never build before just by tweaking little things here and there. So, um, yeah, I've got to start that. I've got to go get the lumber tomorrow. Nice. Um, lots it's and funny lots how of when 10 you, and 12 quarter walnut. It's funny when you have a project like that, how you kind of almost drag your feet to get it started, even though the probably the best thing is to just get it started and get it done with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the cool thing is, is I've got a real catalyst to get it started. It's called my new 20-inch planer that I have not yet turned on. <laughs> so I'm really excited to uh, to break that thing in with some uh, 15-inch wide 12-quarter walnut. Sweet. Hey, let, nice. let me ask you. So were these... Were these uh, disagreements purely based on just like taste and style or, you know, because there's times where I've worked with people where they want things that either aren't possible or they're not advisable for, for like, <laughs> yes. for, for basically like this just looks ridiculous. We, we can't do that. Let's find something that's a little more of a compromise or it kind of breaks a wood movement rule uh, or a material rule that's just what they want is not realistic. So mm-hmm. were they really just purely style things or was she asking for stuff that's just not possible in, in like good quality furniture? Well, a little bit of both. It was mostly aesthetics, mostly style and and cosmetic things. But you could tell somewhere along the line, she'd had a conversation with somebody that knows furniture Mm -hmm. and it picked up a few things. Just enough to be dangerous. (laughs) She she knew what, what a breadboard was and definitely wanted them. And like, no matter what, there were going to be breadboards on this. She's like, well, this table, you know, think of picnic table. It's got about quarter inch gaps between the top boards so the water can flow through. So I said to her, well, do you want those gaps on your formal dining room table? Um, Because we don't really, we don't really need the breadboard. It's where the crumbs are going to go. You know, if each (laughs) board is individual, the breadboard's there to, you know, keep it flat and everything. Well, you can go ahead and put the breadboard in the end. So what I did is I went back into SketchUp and I drew a breadboard. Imagine each individual board being mortised into the breadboard. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I explained to her is, is a, I don't know about you. I don't think that looks very good. Sounds weird. Yeah. Well, imagine like the side of a, of a, of a Morris chair, you know, all the little slats on the side. Yeah. Yeah. That's your tabletop. Um, and it just looks odd. And then second of all, you're locking all those boards into place. Now, granted, we're dealing with, if we went with narrower boards, the wood move is not that big of a deal, but there's just all this extra stuff there that's not necessary. Mm. So, you know, I had explained to her the reason for a breadboard, you know, what the breadboard does. And then I showed her images of tables that had breadboards. So that way, at least we were able to come to the realization that this is an interior table. We don't need those gaps. So then it was, well, I like the look of the gaps. So can you maybe like put a groove, you know, in the tabletop? So you see where the gaps or like a V notch nice or something like that. Yep. So then that was the compromise. And then I said, no, recognize crumbs and dust and dirt are going to get in there and they're not going to be able to fall through. So that could be a problem, you know, six months from now. So it was a lot of, you know, I like this element. I like that look. So I want it Yeah. Uh, without a lot of thought into how will that alter it? You know, it's kind of like Franken table. You bring together all these little pieces and what does it look like in the end? So uh, it, again, it, I don't want to sound negative because it was actually a really rewarding experience. Now, granted, I haven't cut a thing yet. Yeah. So it could all, you know, 
go to hell <laughs> once that See, happens. But what, I, what I'm seeing here is you're missing an opportunity now to sell the accessories, which would be a tray that the plates could be set on so that nothing falls through those slats. <laughs> there we go. So, you know, you could have had a big upsell there, uh, there you Shannon. Go. You know, and then you could also market it where you could have different ones for the various seasons because, you know, <laughs> you don't want them always to be the same thing during a holiday. Yeah, I think it's actually a really good exercise to go outside of your personal taste zone. You know, maybe not even your comfort zone, just some, work in a style you've never worked in or maybe one that you wouldn't want in your own house. But that's one of the great things about taking on jobs like this is you you can kind of expand your horizons a little bit. Kind of like, a, you know, you're a musician, Shannon, so it's like playing a piece of music that isn't something you would normally listen to. But you've you, as a musician, you have a desire to master all types of music, you know, just because right. you want to be good at playing music. So you try those other styles and it just makes you a better, more well-rounded musician. Well, it isn't an app metaphor too, because I've always said that, you know, as a music major, there's very little music I don't like because you can kind of appreciate the, the, the technique behind it, Except the, for rap. the artistry of it. <laughs> then some music comes out and that really puts that theory to the test. I really, yeah. really have a hard time sticking to that theory. But the same thing here, um, I'm really now kind of, well, first of all, I'm pretty vested in this design because I've put a lot of work into it. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm actually kind of excited about some of the technical challenges that will go behind it and how, especially in a hand tool only shop, how am I going to make some of this stuff? How am I going to position those mortises directly center in this X pattern, once I've done the half laps and mm-hmm. make sure they're all exactly the same so that the table sits level and all that fun stuff. Um, so, yeah, it's it's um, it's been a very interesting exercise. Let's cool. just put it that way. Well, you know, and the good thing is now that you've got V grooves, you could hide those crappy glue joints. There you yeah. go. Perfect. <laughs> every time I have like a, a big tabletop, I always think like, man, no matter what my joints look like, if I put V grooves down this thing, no one will ever know. It's perfect. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. T- I should- to add to this whole thing, it has to be knocked down so that it can uh, be translated. Oh, no. oh, that's always fun. <laughs> nice. Brought up there. So. I, I was just going to say, I'm like the uh, kind of, I was like, put the V grooves in my, my back pocket. I actually had a, a friend uh, say something to me about, you know, hey, we want to uh, hide our refrigerator. We're thinking that you'd be really good at creating us cabinets that look exactly like the cabinets we have. I mean, you know how to do that, right? You're a woodworker. Mm, nope. <laughs> <laughs> forgot uh, how what to do you that. need these by? Nope. I gave it up. Well, nice. we're thinking October. Oh, wow. I'm sorry. I'm not available until November. <laughs> nice. Hey, so Matt, I've been watching your Facebook page and yeah. you've seemed to have quite the adventure this past week. Yes. Uh, we ended up uh, going with some friends, a, a number of friends. We rented a large houseboat. It had six cabins on it, sleeping cabinets, two bathrooms, um, a, uh, a a deck on top, which included a hot tub, which to me at some point I'm like, I am not getting in that because how long has I been sitting out here uh, <laughs> and how many people had this boat before us? Uh, you can go ahead and sit in the human stew if you want to, not me. Nice. Uh, but yeah, we took a, a nice leisurely cruise. And by leisurely, I mean super leisurely. We, we had people fighting to be the captain, not in the sense that like, oh, I want to be the captain. Like, no, it's your turn to be the captain so I can go sleep for the rest of the week. Uh, and so, we just so you guys up. have to like you have to pilot this thing yourself. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We Lake Cumberland, uh, Kentucky, and we just got on the water. And thankfully, we had a friend who was pretty good at piloting it. And we're just like, which direction do you want to go? Um, that's a good way. Let's that sounds go there. that sounds scary to me. Yes. <laughs> I if guess it had been like anybody when, else except for this one one guy that was with us, um, I probably would have been like, you know. 
why don't we just stay in the marina? The marina's nice. Yeah, it's kind of like how they let just anybody rent like a semi to move their house. <laughs> you know what I mean? like, it's, it's funny because they, they tell you in the brochure in the brochure that it's like a uh, an hour long, maybe two hour long training session on how to operate the boat, go through all the things that you need to worry about. It was more like 10, 15 minutes with a kid that was about 16 years old <laughs> who probably wanted to be someplace else other than talking with adults. Oh, that's awesome. Well, it's and and the, the remainder of that time after you watched the video was basically signing liability waivers. Uh, no, there was no video. It was the kid going, you do this, this, and this, and handing you a uh, photocopied, uh, what they called a manual, but it was basically photocopied, not even stapled, just all these pages. And it's like, if you need any information, it should be somewhere on here or just radio us. You can radio us. Do you want to use the radio? That's no. crazy. Where is the radio? <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds scary, but also fun. Oh, it was amazing. So, yeah, so we tied up in a few different grottos. We went from one place to another. There was a couple of uh, uh, small waterfalls that you could look at. I kept con- getting really concerned because at one point, uh, liquor with some of my friends was flowing quite heavily. And I think they were thinking, you know what would be fun? Let's go over the waterfall. But luckily, <laughs> we couldn't get access to it. My the, the last couple of days, I got all excited because while we were checking out this one quote-unquote island, uh, it looks like they had said – the water had receded some time ago, and so it might, you know, might find some funky-looking stuff here and there. I found this log that, as far as I'm concerned, after watching Axemen for several seasons, this is a hand-hewn uh, log. So I was trying to figure out how to hook that up to the back of the boat so we could drag it home and then maybe run it through Shannon's 20-inch planer. <laughs> nice. Nice. Good stuff. All right. Well, let's move into what's new. Got a couple of things to share with you from the community. Cool stuff that we found and they found. Uh, this, I can't remember who shared this with me originally, but I had to put it in here. It's an ultra-high-speed camera taking video of saw blades cutting wood. And it's Ooh. it's so awesome. It's like super high frame rate and you just see exactly like the shearing action. And if you've ever, you looked at like tooth geometry and things like that on various blades and saws and we talk about it's sort of in theory what's happening there. But this is at the level where you can actually see what's happening for a cross cut and why you, you get the tear. I mean, it's, it's obvious, but it's really neat to see it on this level of detail. Uh, amazing stuff. So it's a YouTube video. I will definitely put the link in there for you. Uh, it's just, I don't know you're going to learn anything from it, but it's it's very cool to watch. <laughs> I am watching it right learning. now, and I think somebody else should read all the rest of my stuff so I can finish watching this video. It's mesmerizing, isn't it? It's, it is. Yeah, and well, speaking of me- mesmerizing, this next one is uh, is pretty good, too. Yeah, this one came in from Alan, and I'm sure other people have seen this around. It's been pretty popular recently. It's the time-lapse of woodcut millimeter by millimeter that creates creates waves that look like rippling water. So this is really, really neat. I had to do a double check just to make sure that I understood what was going on here. And it sounds like uh, the person that ended up doing this, uh, Keith Scritch, I believe is his name, mm-hmm. uh, ended up taking a plane pass, a very light plane pass, taking a picture, and then just kept doing the way down through. And you watch how the grain kind of moves and, and, and like it says, like a, it ripples a little bit as you go through it. And once you speed it up and go frame by frame, that he connected together. So it's really neat as you're kind of going through the wood in the various layers. Yeah. Very cool. I like that one. That one's pretty. That would make a cool screensaver or something. At first I thought I was watching like, like a storm on Saturn, you know, like with how they show like that big giant red eye moving around. (laughs) The weather system. (laughs) Yeah. Good stuff. That's very cosmos of you, Matt. I know I have my, I was on vacation, so I had time to think about these things. (laughs) Um, this next one comes from Levi, and I think this is going to almost be a kickback to one of the um, 
the, the table designs we showed last week or two weeks ago, whatever that was, the um, like a topographic oh, the, table we did. The river looking thing. Yeah. Yeah. This one is imagine um, a topographic map combined with Legos using wood, glass and stack lamination. And that's what you get here. It's a coffee table that has basically stacked different blocks of wood. Again, going back to that Lego thing and in glass to create what, I mean, it looks like the ocean depths, basically. I think he calls it like the depths or something like blue abyss or something, ocean blue, whatever. Go look at it. It's really cool. <laughs> um, it's just, it's just, I don't know. It could be, he could have sculpted it to make it look, you know, smooth and, and undulating. But the fact that he left that slightly square kind of eight bit Lego look to it, I think is even cooler. It's it does add something different to it. Yeah. yeah it's an awesome table. It's cool. Mm-hmm. All right, I got uh, two because I didn't do the show notes right here. I'll get, knock these out real quick. Uh, Marilyn sent us a link. She says, it's better than seven soccer goals. And I'm still trying to figure that out. I don't know. What well, it's during the, the FIFA World Cup, I think, is what oh, she said. Oh, for people who pay attention to soccer. Okay, I got it. Gotcha. <laughs> for, for the Germans, basically. I gotcha. Uh, I gotcha now. Dr. Piper just came out my nose. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is a, a link, and this actually, this has made its rounds. I mean, what doesn't these days? If it's even remotely interesting, you're going to see it a thousand times. This is that uh, table thing that, like, folds out into a bench. It, and oh, speaking yeah. of, like, picnic benches, it kind of looks like one of those, um, you know, furniture that transforms from one thing into another seems to be a very popular thing these days so that's that's what it is it's a very cool design uh, but a crappy little video so it's kind of like that circle table that has been traveling the internet for years that's just this old crappy video Um, this one you know I look forward to seeing this arrive in my inbox for the next five or six years yeah, I actually, it's been showing up in my inbox, but that's from friends that keep saying, we need to build this. We yeah. got to have this. And I'm like, oh, no, well, we well, don't. unlike the circular table with the like opening mechanism, this is actually one that I think we might be able to build. Yes. <laughs> like that other I'm one. I'm pretty I'm like, sure no. if I purchase that 10,000 plans, that one's probably in there. Yeah, most likely. <laughs> uh, all right. And the last one here is from Ed. It's a, a planning competition. And I think we've linked to one like this before where they had the really wide uh, plane that they were using to make this stuff that just looked, I mean, it's wide, like two rolls yeah, like of uh, tissue paper. wide plane. Yeah, insane. Uh, well, this is a planing competition in terms of like who can get the thinnest shaving. Excuse me, I'm stifling a burp. And, uh, and this is just on a regular like an eight quarter piece of stock. Really cool. I mean, the shavings, I think the, the smallest one they got that I saw was like nine microns. Yeah. That's, that's thin. Crazy. And, and as I'm watching this, I'm like. I can't even wrap my head around how thick that is. Matt, right, you're you're a microscope guy. How thick is that? It's uh really, it's really, really thin. It's a, uh, it's it's very <laughs> that was the very technical thin. Version, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, so so it's it's really cool. It's a lot of fun to watch. But even as a as a fellow woodworker, as I'm watching this going, this is stupid. Right? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like in in a weird like I totally respect it, and I and I I love it on one level, but on another level, maybe it's my non woodworker side. I look at it and I'm going, my gosh, all of that effort and all that precision to, to get that shaving and why? Well, if you watch <laughs> no, the video, like, notice some of the, the faces of the people that are there. You can tell the ones that want to be there and yeah. you can tell the ones that just have zero interest, but they're doing it because they kind of like the person they're with. I was going to say the, the wife or <laughs> the, the wife girlfriend. Was dragged <laughs> exactly. along. They, there is definitely some of those looks like you've got to be kidding. Yeah, you hear the baby crying in the background too, which is great. <laughs> That would that would be Mateo. Um, well, you know, we got to be careful because we. I certainly know a lot of people who ooh and ah over how thin their shaving is coming out of their smoothing plane. Oh, totally. I, I had to slap a couple of wrists when I was teaching down in Texas. Like, come on, yeah. <laughs> 
deep in your cut. Let's get some work done here. Well, and that, and that's that's fine, but it, it's one of those things where I think just in pursuit of perfection, you know, just as humans, we always want to raise the bar, and whether it's something in like athletics or in our case in woodworking, getting the thinnest shaving possible. Why? Because we can, you know. And it's interesting to see who can who could be that well tuned and and move this plane across the board to get this nine micron shaving. You know, it's interesting, but I still have this side of me that goes, "What the hell are we doing here?" <laughs> Ninja warrior of planing. That's what. <laughs> yeah. Yes. There yeah, you go. Pretty much. All right, let's move on to the poll of the week. These are uh, polls written up by our buddy Tom Iovino at tomsworkbench.com. And uh, like I mentioned last time, we're going to mention uh, and give the results of last week's poll and then give you the new poll as well. So last week, they uh, he came up with a question, do you name your projects? Which is kind of interesting. He used an example from uh, David Pachuto from the Drunken Woodworker who likes to name his projects. Uh, so we had about uh, 641 people replied. Uh, 58% said, I've never thought about doing it. 16% say, no way, no how. And uh, only 5% say that they name every single project that goes out the door. Um, I call that one uh, tuition. I call that one electric. I call that one car payment. Oh, I missed one. Um, yeah. 21%. I call that one lunch. <laughs> 21% say only for special projects. I would fall into that category. Like I name, I do name my projects generically, but really because it's for the purpose of indexing properly on my website and, and selling something. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I'm not going to call it, you know, I'm not going to call a bandsaw box Dave. But, you know, but I might, I might, Dave doing, I might call it Uh, like, you broke up a while ago. (laughs) I might call it like Nicole's bandsaw box or something like that, just to to differentiate it a little bit. Interesting stuff. All right. So the next poll uh, that you can participate in now at the Wood Whisperer, we'll put the, uh, the link there, but you can just go to the homepage and find this link. Uh, uh, Tom asks about radial arm saws which have uh, kind of fallen off the the radar a little bit in the, probably the last decade or so, maybe more. And he wants to know, what do you think about radial arm saws? Because they're kind of scary to, to some <laughs> folks, but uh, yes. other folks have been using them for a long time, very comfortable with them, and can get a lot of good work done. So let us know what you think. Just head to the website and answer the poll, and we'll give the results for this next week. You know what's funny about radial arm saws? Um, back to Nothing. this... this- table I was working on. Originally, the client wanted it all reclaimed, uh, reclaimed lumber. So I went to a place to just price it out. Uh, one of those, uh, they tear down buildings and everything. And they had everything from kitchen cabinets to tubs. And they had a whole tool section. And it was like 30 radial arm saws. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Nothing else. Just radial arm saws. Jeez. Interesting. All right. Let's move into kickback. And we've got quite a bit here. So let's try to... Um, push through these as fast as possible. So this one is in from Marty. Remember a while back we talked about the pencil sharpening dude? Oh, yes. And we raised the question of whether it was real or not. Well, apparently David Reese, the gentleman in the video, uh, he's the pencil sharpening guru guy. He's got a new TV show on National Geographic Channel called Going Deep with David Reese. And uh, here's a little uh, excerpt that says about the show. This is a how-to show of epic proportions that teaches you how to do the things you think you already know how to do. Each episode is hilariously dry-witted how-to adventure series. David Reese, humorist and self-made aficionado of the everyday, tackles unassuming tasks such as tying your shoes or making the perfect ice cube for your delicious beverages. Apparently it uh, airs on July 14th, which is a Monday, which already passed. Yes? Yes. Uh, yes, already yeah, passed. Yeah. Okay, well, mm-hmm. uh, look for that. Look for that in your uh, local program guide, and uh, we'll put the link to the show as well. So, so to me, this sounds like it's totally, you know, riding on the heels of you mentioned the last time, Matt, the artisanal toast. Yes. 
It's yeah. totally riding on this uh, this wave of let's focus on the mundane and make it you know not so so mundane. But this <laughs> like when we're asking about whether this video that he made is real or fake, I think it's kind of both. I, I yeah. think it's a very calculated effort. Uh, to do something as mundane as sharpen a pencil, but give it that much attention where there's a degree of seriousness to it because he's obviously got to put thought into the process to make it believable. But at the same time, I get the feeling it's a very calculated thing that's going on here to help certainly to promote this show and his whole thing that he's getting into. You know, the one the one thing with the idea of this show that, you know, the, the, that you are going to learn that the things you're doing every single day, the little mundane things, uh, you're not doing them properly or maybe <laughs> as well as you could. It reminds yeah. me of my whole entire life because uh, my, my wife and all the women that I know have always told me you're doing that wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, totally. Well, it's so like a, I have a feeling I have a flashback while watching this. It's like in my Facebook feed every day, I get at least two references to like the top ten life hacks that will change change every day. You know, it's like well, okay, I know the banana thing, right? I'm opening it from the wrong side. What else? Right. <laughs> exactly. And I always look at them, and I always go, "Man, I wish I had that five minutes back." Yeah, yeah. It's usually <laughs> that, there's the number one life hack: don't read that and just keep working. Stay off of Facebook. There you go. You'll get ten <laughs> times more done. Sweet. Well, hey, we have another one here. This came in from Stan. He says, Stan uh, says, I I just completed a small table, which is a whole other story that I incorporated a lower shelf between the tapered legs. Now, I was concerned about wood movement, so I used breadboard ends to address the wood movement issue. And the ends of the breadboard are attached to the legs with dowels. I don't expect the breadboard ends to grow in length, and since they are only an inch or so wide, I don't expect them to grow in width much either. When the shelf was made, it was relatively dry, so I made the shelf about an eighth of an inch overall narrower than the outside dimensions of the leg. Only time will tell if this technique will work. And this is for sure. I don't know if you guys remember um, mm-hmm. our good fun, friend Roberto had a question about putting a shelf on a uh, table for his sister-in-law. Right. And I believe that is what Stan is responding to. That's an interesting way to do it. I don't see any reason why it would be problematic. If, if the breadboard end is attached properly, it's going to allow it to move. Uh, and there's no reason it can't be captured while it's doing that. So interesting. Right. Yeah. And I'm really kind of interested in the whole other story, but that's for another podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. All right. This one comes from Alex, not my dog. Or maybe it did. <laughs> it's crossing over the line there. <laughs> yeah. The amount of typos in here could be from him. But um, a former colleague of mine used to be a military aviator. And in one of his annual medical exams required for flying, he was told he was an alcoholic based on his blood work and he had to stop drinking. Although he wasn't a big drinker, he completely stopped for 18 months and he was still accused of drinking. He was accused of lying and then he needed a liver biopsy. While he was waiting for the operating room to be ready, the surgeon started asking about his hobbies. He mentioned woodworking, which prompted the surgeon to ask what type of protection he used. After saying none and that he worked in his basement shop, the surgeon decided not to go forward with a biopsy. His liver being like one on, being like one of an alcoholic was due to his woodworking. He started using a mask and his liver went back to being fine. Apparently, this is a possible side effect of inhaling the chemicals used in our finishes. So that's uh, interesting because we re- we just had the guy who said he was having like that lethargy reaction. Yeah, sensitivity. Using the, right. Um, so this is just another one of those things that – Either will freak you out and scare you off woodworking <laughs> altogether, or you'll just shrug and go, eh. Well, it's like, well, well, how do you do your finishing? Oh, well, I usually just strap the jar to my face. Uh, <laughs> exactly. And that works out well for me. Um, Basically, once I pass out, I'm done. <laughs> 
project's done. Yay. Uh, I found that deep breathing really helps. Yeah, it, it's interesting, but I think it's a good, I, I, I don't know. I've never heard of anything like that in the past, but uh, that doesn't mean anything at all just because I don't like to talk to people. So um, exactly. <laughs> it, it's, uh, I mean, this is just a good cautionary tale, you know, just to be like this, this can happen. Like the, the, just because a, a lot of people get away with it doesn't mean for a few unlucky folks they're not going to have some serious side effects to this crap i'm just wondering what other things we could blame on woodworking like you know if probably you, you everything know, if, if you pop positive on your jug test in the tour de france can you just say well that's because i was woodworking last night <laughs> yeah i'm a woodworker mm. so well you yeah, know i mean you, if, if poppy seeds can set off an opium test not that it's ever happened but either one well, right, i mean we need to break off a relationship it's like look i'm a woodworker yeah. i'm yeah. sorry I, this is more for your protection. Out of my control. Out of my you control. black out so many times when I'm doing the finishing, you have no idea. So we it's, it's, we can't talk about this. <laughs> All right. Next one we have here from Jim. He says, I recently finished building a split-top Nicholson-type workbench for myself. It's a huge upgrade over what I was using before. An MDF-topped uh, metal cabinet with a machinist vise, which was near useless for wood holding. So having come to an essentially from an essentially viceless bench, I had no particular bias toward what vice I would want to use, other than I would want options to find what works work methods I will eventually gravitate to as my skills grow. Also wanted to build a bench on a bit of a budget. During the episode, the, to- uh, the topic of metal jaw vices came up. When choosing my front vice, I too was a bit worried about the metal guide bars and these vices uh, that these vices typically have, but I found a Wilton 7-inch vice on Amazon, about 160 bucks, and this vice has no extra guide bars. It has a single metal screw that's covered, nice feature, keeps out the sawdust, uh, also comes with a pivotable jaw that's removable, which I did, and attached my own chop. The rapid action nut, aka the quick release, is um, also a nice feature. Has a metal handle, which I'm thinking may be more durable than a wooden one over time. Installation was pretty easy under the bench top as long as you allow for enough thickness. Uh, while not the cheapest option, it's not the most expensive either. I find the Wilton Vice has not had an issue so far with racking, given it does not have the other guide bars. I've clamped pieces vertically so that they're on uh, the right side of the vice, and there's no noticeable racking or piece slipping. So uh, we also had another email, I believe, or something came in uh, where someone was was saying that he doesn't have any racking issues with his vices and that uh, Shannon's nuts. Or, or basically, that what I suggested was that in all likelihood, the vices that that he's using, that Shannon was using, just may not be the best <laughs> examples oh, no question. I'm <laughs> of about metal benches. vices. Well, what's more important is they might have at one point been good, but we're talking about actual antique workbenches. Yeah, like right. one of them was built in a Baltimore cabinet shop in 1805, hey, and that's the one I'm using. But you know, I think what's interesting because we do have a couple of examples of this, and in every example when the person says they really like their front vice it's something that they bought in an antique shop or found on ebay not something they went out and bought new so i think that's an indication it's not to say there's probably a good manufacturer of front vices out there now but most of them are vintage yeah well he said wilton on amazon i'm assuming that's a new vice on, on this particular one i don't know for sure but you're right i would imagine the older stuff it's if it's in good shape you know might be more durable he said Amazon, I sell eBay. Interesting. Well, I'll have to look that up. Hmm. Okay. Cool. Well, hey, we have one more, and this came from our good friend, Wilbur Pan, who is going to be a speaker at this year's Woodworking in America. 
I hope everybody has a chance Speak to sit right yourself. in the front row and, and, and say stuff to him to throw him <laughs> off. That'd be a lot of fun. Anyways, I think this one, Wilbur is talking about something with Shannon uh, because he says, in Shannon's experience using a track saw and having issues with it during the shop remodel in episode 189, my bet is that the issues he had were more due to using a tool that he was less familiar with and not a hand tool versus a power tool thing. Oh my God, the mud's being slung right there. Wow. <laughs> Holy cats. So he goes on to say, I know that for me, if I use a Western saw, I have to slow down and think about what I'm doing compared to using a Japanese saw, which I use much more frequently. And I'm relatively sure that if Mark or Matt were working with a table saw or router of a different brand with controls that were not in the same place as what they're used to, they would find themselves slowing down compared when they are using the tools that they are used to using. So why does he have to apply logic? Yeah. yeah. You know, you know, really Wilbur. Again, sit in the front row and give Wilbur <laughs> I'm so sad I'm not going. I mean, if, if for that reason alone, I, I really did want to see Wilbur's session. And yeah. uh, not going to be able to make it this year. Kind of bummed. Wilbur, you're just going to have to make sure they bring you back for another one. Yeah, definitely. Well, good luck with that, Wilbur, and thanks, uh, thanks for the feedback. All right, let's move into our voicemail. We do have one here from, actually, we've got a ton sitting in the hopper, and I think maybe we'll have a, if they're all actual voicemails and not just wrong numbers, operators, and hangups, uh, maybe we'll do a voicemail-only show uh, in the near future. Uh, this one's from Jeff. He has a question about spray booths. Hey, guys. Jeff from North Carolina here. I have a question. Uh, which one of you guys do you think would win in a bike race? <laughs> uh, the real question is about spray booths. I just got a HVLP sprayer and uh, work out of a two-car garage. I'm looking for a knockdown solution, and the only thing I've found is the plans to make the one out of the 4x8 rigid foam insulation, which I think might be too large. Uh, so I was curious if you had any other solutions, ideas uh, that might work. I only spray water-based uh, finishes, so I'm not worry about the explosion-proof fan and any of that stuff, and I'd like to keep this uh, somewhat affordable, if possible. Uh, thanks a lot. Love the show, and looking forward to hearing the answer. Thanks, guys. All right. Well, most importantly, the bike race. Now, here's the thing. Matt has a history of mountain biking. Now, yes, gr- but I fall over the handlebars a lot, so yeah. that probably doesn't help. But but it's it's been a while, I assume. So you may be a little, you know, in not as good a shape as you were in your mountain biking days. Oh, yes. um, Shannon, I know you used to to run. I know you you posted a picture of you running a marathon at one point, well, right? I, I actually also have a bike racing, but I was not a mountain biker. I was a road racer. Okay, all right. I was a domestique for the national champion University of Colorado cycling team. Okay. So oh, Shannon, don't say bad things about yourself. You're not that dumb. <laughs> Basically, domestique means I was a water boy. Oh, okay. In that case, oh, you can keep on saying bad things about nice, yourself. Nice. Now, uh, you know, the, the the reality is I have the endurance of a flea. And um, while I do like to exercise and stay in shape, I just don't have stamina. So I would say I'm probably going to come in third on this bike race. And man, the, between the two of you, it's just like who has the most pure determination to win? Uh, it yeah. depends. Uh, how close can I get to Shannon before I shove a bar in between his knees? I was going to say, ultimately, it comes down to who can throw the other off the bike without getting caught. Yeah, who's going to play dirty on this one? <laughs> uh, well, that's a, that's a great question, Jeff. Now, as for the spray booth, here, here's the thing. I've got a couple of links here. One is a um, it's just a quick article. Uh, both are on fine woodworking, and it says, make a simple spray booth with fold-away do- uh, doors on it. And then also one is a members-only paid 
PDF, and this is from an issue probably last year sometime, maybe a year and a half ago, where it's a very substantial wooden thing where he's actually making his own fan. Pardon me. That actually is a little bit more than you're probably willing to do. That article was like this is this is almost not practical the amount of work that's that's involved in this. Did you guys do you remember that? Uh, yeah. Where, yeah. He makes the actual like thing the the case the the casing for the fan and it's like it, he actually turns it and this thing is like you know 36 inches across uh, in diameter. So it's 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 substantial. But my question for Jeff is if he's got the plan for the 4x8 sheets and the knockdown like every knockdown system I've ever seen is typically based on on those sort of foam panels. Um, why can't we just cut them down and, and make yeah. it a little bit smaller um, and, and just use the same concept and build off of that? Um, if I ever do a knockdown booth, it's probably going to be a variation of one of those foam knockdown units that you can find plans for. I feel like I saw somewhere like a sheeting, like plastic sheeting type thing that you can roll up ah, and yeah. then it would drop down. And they make those ones that have like the inline zipper yes. so that you actually can zip the corners closed. So sure. you actually are creating... Now, I, that might be expensive, though. I mean, you're talking about a pretty specialty plastic sheeting product yeah. as compared to your, your rigid foam insulation, which you know is is much, much, much cheaper. Sure. Yeah. But that's at least something that you could roll up out of the way. Uh, it doesn't take up any space as far as a knockdown type deal. And it would essentially hang from the ceiling, kind of like those old shower curtains that would hang 360 degrees around the tub. Um, I, that was in Wood Magazine. I was actually just going through back issues of Wood Magazine the other day, and that's ironically good timing because that's where I saw yeah. that. Wonder how as far effective as where and when I don't know. Wonder how effective it would be if you built some sort of like a pipe. You know, just picture a U shape up against the the wall, suspended from the ceiling, just like a you know a shower curtain, but have like right. just multiple inexpensive, nearly disposable, you know, crap quality sort of shower curtains that go around, and then you have a yeah. good powerful fan. Um, obviously it's not going to be as good as like a real spray booth, but if the fan's powerful enough and you've got those sheets, there blocking the, the back and the sides might not be bad as just kind of like a makeshift sort of solution. Yeah. Cause what we're is- really talking about is controlling overspray, right? Yeah. I mean, he's already said that he's, he's using water base and if you've got the fan that can pull the majority of it out and then you're just worried about your finish, not getting all over everything, or in my case, all over the camera lens on multiple occasions because mm-hmm. I'm an idiot. <laughs> That's fine. Uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's funny. I'm sitting here in the basement, and uh, Samantha used to do a lot of shoots down here, and we actually have this uh, T-Track channel that she had me put up so that she could put backdrops and move them out of the way, kind of like what you're describing hmm. for the shower curtain. Yeah. And I keep looking at and as you're saying this, I'm looking up at it going, huh, those would actually hold the backdrops, like or the sheets like you're talking about. It's yeah. rather inexpensive. It's just made out of aluminum, uh, nice and tight to the ceiling, and very easy to take things up, take things down because we used to do it all the time. And yeah, if you had just the fan to pull the exhaust out, since that's what you're most concerned about, this is a great way to keep the car from getting coated with how many layers of lacquer or whatever you're working with. <laughs> yeah, definitely. All right. Well, I don't know if that helped at all, Jeff, but uh, maybe that gives you some ideas. All yeah. right, let's move into email. And I got one here from Cricket. 
That, is that really his name, Cricket? Uh, yes, yes. Cricket has sent us numerous ones, and um, uh, there hasn't been the cricket sound in the background like usually <laughs> when I try to drop a joke or something. The chirping, so. yeah. We need some chirping. Oh, chirping. <laughs> uh, chirping versus chortling. Uh, okay, he says, to me, the most elusive aspect, it is kind of a twofer sort of question, the most elusive aspect of woodworking has to be finishing. As of late, I've read articles and books that mention fuming your raw furniture prior to applying any finish. Is this done in a tent-like apparatus, like setting off a bug bomb? What's the advantage? Is this supposed to open the pores to accept the finish better? Uh, and is the finished piece visually more appealing? What kind of products would you ask for? I'd say Woodcraft for fuming applications. I always learned, yeah, I always learned to take a barely damp rag and wipe down your piece to remove remnants and open the pores prior to applying anything. I know you guys must have rituals for finishing raw materials. Please share. So I looked at this as kind of a two-parter. The first question is specifically about fuming. And the second one, you know, maybe we can all quickly chime in about our pre-finishing rituals, if you will, just like things that we always do to any project before we start worrying about finish or stain. Uh, so to answer the question about fuming, uh, fuming is not to be taken lightly. Fuming involves ammonia and it's very very highly concentrated ammonia and that will likely be your biggest obstacle is sourcing the ammonia Um, yeah it'll get you on the no fly list real quick yeah yeah no (laughs) kidding um the stuff is nasty and in the past when i've done fuming a couple of times in the past and it's been quite a while like seven or eight years ago now and uh the stuff was still very at that time very difficult to find i can't imagine it got any easier you uh, typically would have to go to either a blueprint supply house or some sort of a cleaning supply like industrial cleaning chemicals you might be able to find um ammonia at that high concentration, usually referred to as like aqueous ammonia or aqua ammonia. And uh, man, it is nasty, nasty stuff. So you're absolutely right in your description. You have to make a tent. A lot of times I'll take like two by fours and just get that. uh, It comes in rolls, like big plastic sheeting that people use to cover floors when they paint. Um, Spread it out. You make a nice tent and put your finished product in the middle. I get two by fours and wrap the plastic around the ends to weight it down and also provide a fairly decent seal uh, around this little makeshift tent. And then you just put pans of the ammonia in there and run like hell. Um, you're obviously going to, you want to have a specialized respirator that filters ammonia that it is like, you know how, when you open household ammonia and you just take a whiff of it and it's like, Holy smokes. That's, that's strong stuff. Um, it's like you, you got your nose up a, a cat's wiener or something, but really bad. Um, <laughs> as I'm you know, sitting next wow. to the litter box, you guys know what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> no, oh. Mark, tell us about it. Uh, what, what has this been happening? But it's, it's, it's really, it's like a thousand times worse than that. Literally bad enough that it can yes. probably knock you out if you take a strong whiff. And, uh, even if you have the, the lung protection, you've got a respirator on, it will immediately burn your eyes. You know, so it, it, so you, I when I did it, I had goggles on as well because the fumes are so strong, and I really took every precaution possible. So it's not something to be taken lightly. Personally, uh, these days, I don't think it's worth it. I think you can get decent results with stains and dyes that look like the old fumed furniture. Um, the thing is, fuming because it's it's really a chemical transformation. It can have some variability, and it doesn't always look great. And from board to board, it may not look consistent. So you may be hitting this thing with some glaze or stain. Uh, or even just like some people will use like orange shellac as a follow-up just to kind of even out the tone a little bit. I don't think it's really worth it for the risks. Um, so look into, uh, I'll see if I can find a link. Jeff Jewett has a couple of articles focused on kind of like a replacement recommendation to get that fumed look without the the danger of fumed finishes. 
Right. Yeah, it's definitely a situation where there's a reason why it's it's probably not done nearly as often as it used to be. It is definitely dangerous. And rather than getting yourself in a potential uh, bind with a bestiality charge, uh, <laughs> go and visit the local cat lady and you'll get an idea of how horrible the ammonia smell is. Mm, now you know why I don't own cats. Um, so now the, the second part of the question was about just a finish sort of um, ritual that we have. Now, for me, it always comes down to good finish prep. Of course, I'm going to sand through all the grits, typically to 180, sometimes to one or uh, 220, if I'm feeling, uh, feeling you know, like the... Are you frisky? I'm a little bit frisky, yeah. And um, then I pretty much will... You can blow the dust off, but the problem with that, if you use like compressed air, you're putting that dust right back into the air and, and you're going to apply your finish next. Not the greatest thing to do. So I like to use a soft bristle brush attachment on my vac. Uh, and I find that to be a really great way to remove that surface dust uh, in preparation for the finish. Now, if I'm using a water-based finish, of course, I'm going to pre-raise the grain. So after that final sanding, I uh, usually get a spray bottle of water and a sponge or some sort of, a you know, maybe just a shop towel and wipe it down and just put a nice wet layer of water on there, let the grain raise, sand it with uh, my highest grit, usually about 220, 180, and then it's ready for finish. Uh, and again, that's just usually for water-based finishes that that's necessary. Um, but for me, that's that's pretty much my ritual. I don't go much further beyond that. Do you guys do anything different than that? It's pretty typical. Uh, the one that's- thing that I'll do, and actually we had a question that I was going to put into the show notes earlier, but I, I got rid of it because it was too similar to this. But if you have multiple species in a project, say highly contrasting like walnut or maple the one that really gets me are the reddish ones Uh, especially paduk Mm -hmm. where as you sand it it'll like migrate over into the maple and give it a pinkish hue yeah i found that the best way to tackle that is with like mineral spirits or naphtha naphtha specifically because it flashes off i feel quicker um and i wipe down the surface with that after you've done any sanding and you know you see it on the paper towel you've got this pink paper towel that comes back up that tends to grab and pull up that dust a lot more so that now when I'm ready to apply the finish, the 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 solvent in the finish is not going to float the the pink dust over onto the red dust. So sure. that's a nice little, I don't know, we can call it a ritual. It's just something I do when I've got different colored woods in the same piece. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Yeah, it, pretty much what you described is very similar to what I do uh, with a lot of my projects. Although there is oftentimes uh, crying, gnashing of teeth, and praying that it doesn't come out really bad. That's my only other ritual I yeah, have. Yeah, just the <laughs> extra part. Yes, please, please, this time just let it work. <laughs> cool. All right, Matt, you're up. All right. Well, let me just preface this question by saying I now kind of wish I wasn't about to tackle this one because we should maybe possibly get some good kickback from it. I'm sure uh, I'll step on some toes here. But hey, Whoops. you know what? It's the fun of being a co-host on a show like this. <laughs> so anyways, this came from Texas Wood. And Texas Wood was saying, there was a very brief discussion on flatness of S4S boards that caught my attention. Let me preface my question by several facts. Number one, Texas Wood says he's an architect with a background in computer graphics. So precision is always on my mind. And number two, I'm almost completely a self-taught in woodworking. So there wasn't anyone to tell me it's flat enough or not. So I do my own milling at home with a mixture of tools, bench planes and electric planer, and I've become concerned over the level of flatness in my finished milled wood. I tend towards dissatisfaction if I'm able to see hairlines of light under my straight edge when checking my milled boards. What are tolerances for practical are practic- what tolerances are practical for woodworking across, say, a two-foot length, a four-foot length, maybe an eight-foot length? Should those tolerances vary between hardwood and softwood or by individual species? So 
first of all, I, I have to acknowledge the fact that we have a lot of listeners in our audience that are definitely very much of the engineering mindset. And that sounds exactly uh, like our good friend here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the one problem I always run into is when we have the kind of that engineering mindset, we have very specific tolerances and we have a intolerance for going out of the possibility, the idea that things move around and aren't stable and are like within a certain going out like about what, six points away from the decimal point, something like that, (laughs) you know, that's too many. That is, yeah, it's far too many. I mean, (laughs) I I can barely get past uh, one. So anyways, though, you know, this is such a frequent topic. And one thing I know I've struggled with it previously in my own shop. And it wasn't until I took a uh, class, a weekend class with Chris Schwartz and Thomas Lee Nielsen at the Mark Adams School, trying to drop as many names as possible in this list right <laughs> Keep now. Keep going, man. Just Frank Lowe <laughs> was Rob and I Cosman think I remember there. seeing Mark Spagnolo on somebody's t shirt while I was there. And thinking of uh, Shannon Rogers in my ear at the time. Uh, but, anyways, though, the, the one thing I, going into this, and this was an all hand planes event. I was always concerned because there'd be like those, not necessarily little ridges, but almost kind of like a scalloped effect across the boards. So when I put my straight edge up on there across the board, at least I would see these things and would completely freak out. And I'm thinking I'm doing this all wrong. And it wasn't until after the class that it's like one of those, no, this is perfectly fine. This is acceptable. The wood has a little bit of texture. It's okay. Now, Texas Wood was asking about the length of the board. And, of course, this is going to be completely different uh, in the sense that let's say we have a six-foot-long table. And if you step back and look and it suddenly looks like your table is an old horse with a hump in the back all the way down (laughs) and everything you put on the table rolls to the center, obviously that's an issue. But – we're talking maybe more like you know half an inch or an inch uh, thick or, or depth there. When I think of a tolerance that I can live with over the length of a board, I'm thinking more like you know a sixteenth of an inch or, or, or far less than that, like a thirty second or a sixty fourth. If I can see light, if I were to put the straight edge on there, but it's only just a, a hairline of light, that works for me because I can guarantee uh, when you step back and look at it. You, the, unless you have that reference of the straight edge, you're not going to notice that that bow in there. So unless the piece that you're working on is very specific that it has to be dead flat, in which case maybe you could engineer it a little bit with adding some sort of brace or something underneath it, like an apron that would help to to uh, increase that flatness. Other than that, I, I think it's just one of those things that you're looking at this perfect straight line in the plans that you're working on. Cause I know Texas Wood said that he does a lot of computer graphics kind of a thing. Uh, so it's one thing to look at that and then you start building it and then you put these straight edges on there and you see that little thing on. I think you're just beating yourself up far too much about it. It's, it's one of the things you just – it adds to the character of the piece that you're building. <laughs> you know what I find interesting is sort of just evaluating my own viewpoint on things like precision and accuracy – it seems like the 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 better I get at woodworking, or at least I hope I'm getting better over time, and the more you know, the more uh, experience I get under my belt, the higher my tolerances are. And and I don't mean like necessarily my joinery is now sloppy, you know, where it wasn't before. It's like knowing where you can get away with things yeah. not being perfect mm-hmm. is something that um, you know I guess someone <laughs> smarter than me might be able to tell you exactly where those things are and, and really lay it out nicely. But ultimately, it's something that I found that only experience uh, taught me that, oh, you know what? Why am I like so worried about this panel being dead flat? Because I know as soon as I put it into the frame and that frame gets attached to something else, 
no one's ever going to know that it was slightly bowed. So there's one thing I don't have to worry about. But of course, there's a limit to that. There's a point where it's bowed too much, and then you have to worry about it. Um, But that's something that with experience, I've been able to identify those things. So I find it really interesting that the longer I do this, the more I'm like, you know what? It's not, don't don't worry about it, right? Like, (laughs) And it's not like my finished pieces are looking worse. I'm just identifying which areas and what places on the project are safe to have that variability because I know that no one is going to see it and it doesn't affect uh, the overall quality of the piece. Right. You know, and I often wonder time at times if you were to go in and say, look at the classic pieces of furniture that maybe people would reference uh, as like the I'm putting this one up on the pedestal. And this is this is the ultimate. This is the apex of what I could possibly build because this Mm -hmm. was a master, you know, in the 1600s or something like that. But I wonder if you put straight edges on there, just how off they are. I think people would be very disappointed. (laughs) Exactly. First of all, my world is shattered. Yeah. The museum curator will probably throw you out. But second of all, yeah, I mean, it, it shatters the illusion. We were doing that um, at the the Smithsonian the other day in the Kaufman collection. And it's like, these are Goddard and Townsend recognized masterpieces. And it's like, you look close enough. You're like, man, who's the hack that built this? (laughs) You call that a dovetail? I call that a Matt Vanderlist joint. (laughs) The thing is, is this is is a a topic that we will never come to an agreement on. There are people that think differently. I've always, the more I've done this, Mark, I'm the same way. I... I feel like I, I, I care less about this stuff because I know what I can get away with. Um, but I find myself falling more into the like the Roy Underhill style of woodworking, not just hand tools, but just eh, just hit it harder and it'll go together. You know, um, well, you know then, a great example, speaking of Roy, is when he had Peter Follinsby on there putting together, you know, some of the pieces of furniture he has. You watch that. And I think he even jokes around about, you know, like uh, regular woodworkers are probably going insane right now at what right, I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> Specifically overcutting the shoulder on the backside so that the front shoulder comes up flush. Yeah. Yep. I mean, that's the type of stuff you do. But then I look at um, the first person that comes to mind is Daryl Peart, um, the green and green master guys. Mm-hmm. Roten? He's Roten. He's Roten he several done, books. He done be Roten them. <laughs> he done written. Um, he, like, you read his books, you'll see out to three decimal places in some of his descriptions. Oh, yeah. And he's obviously got his shop and his machinery set up in such a way that he can work to those tolerances. He yep. can be that precise. So, a lot of it does depend upon the tools that you use. And and because it's it's not so much about being that precise, but being able to repeat that precision. Yeah, it is really a style. It's a style of woodworking in a way. Are you the kind of woodworker that's walking around with a dial indicator and micrometers, uh, feeler gauges in your apron, or are you walking around with a dead blow hammer? Right. (laughs) (laughs) And and it's not that anyone is right or wrong, um, but I think it's finding what's right for you. Here's the thing: if he's an architect and he's really into this, and a lot of these engineer mindset people. They love it. They're into it. They they take pride in the fact that they can, you know, take little tiny shavings or their drum sander is dialed in so perfectly that they could shave down to a, I don't know, like a th- couple thousandths of an inch. Like that's something they take pride in and that's the way they want to woodwork. I don't think we can criticize it. It may not be right no. for us, but we certainly can't criticize it. That, yeah, that's a very good point. And, that, and, and yeah, cause all we have to do is look at that video that we re- referenced early on with the uh, the Japanese uh, planing uh, contest that yeah. they had going on. <laughs> I mean, those guys were like in, really, really super thin and even checking to make sure that across the entire length of the shaving, mm-hmm. it was the same way. And sure, there are plenty of examples out there of if you want a super dead flat board, 
board. Uh, you can do it this way, and there's anybody that you know can do these things. That's fantastic. But yeah, in my own workshop, um, I'm pretty happy with where I am. Well, and I think there's a point of diminishing returns with this stuff. So to t- yes. you know to be realistic about it, I don't begrudge anyone who wants to pursue woodworking in that way and really getting down to you know to really really tiny amounts. But there is a certain point where your effort that you're putting into that, if you take the the finished piece that you've made and put it next to the finished piece that I've made, and maybe I took a lot of shortcuts, what I consider to be safe shortcuts, and you look at the two finished pieces, most people won't be able to see a difference. So that's where the diminishing returns come. Now, there is a point where I get, maybe I go too far on the other end of the scale, and I'm being a little bit too sloppy, and that's when the final piece is affected. But I don't go into that zone. I stay away from that zone. (laughs) Well, Um, you know, a a great example would be if, say, uh, the two pieces were built, and the one that was in the more uh, strict tolerances, a a particular piece broke on that. uh, Because it is in those those strict tolerances, it's probably a little bit easier to go back in and remake it where yours, you're like, oh, 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 no, close. Oh, oh, no, almost there. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Cool. You know, if it gets to the point where you're getting frustrated, then it's time to step back and look in the mirror, I think. You know, that that is where if we were to offer any criticism one way or the other, too sloppy or too precise, if you get to the point where, okay, I'm 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 not enjoying myself, then it's time to to loosen or tighten those tolerances one way or the other. Yeah. And you know what? Since he did ask a very specific question, what tolerances are practical for woodworking across two foot, four foot, eight foot lengths? You know, to me is look at the project on the whole. If that piece yeah. doesn't impact something else in a negative way by being off, then its its tolerance is um, much higher than you probably think. Right. You know, many times yeah, it's it's much it's your tolerance is usually a lot higher than we're capable of measuring. Yeah. In fact, I think uh, the, uh, my own comment in there uh, regarding that is I think something like over the length of probably more like the, the eight foot length. Uh, if it's deflecting by an eighth of an inch there in the center. Um, it doesn't bother me one bit because yeah. I know when I step back and look at it, I'm not really going to notice it. <laughs> right. Yeah. But you're also half blind. So that is very true. I usually look out of one eye while I'm squinting. <laughs> right. If at the any dark. point the word, the term feeler gauge comes into the, then oh! your tolerances are, are <laughs> then you're going for too much here. I Put like the feeler, feeler gauge down and walk away. I like feeler gauges for shims for when I'm trying to get things to fit in place. <laughs> nice. Cool. All right. Our last email here comes from Alan. He says, my uh, saw craft continues to improve. I'm not yet laser straight on my plywood cuts and often have to reach for the rosewood grip of my trusty number seven to square and shoot my plywood panels. Is this an egregious affront to one of my favorite edge tools? I know that Shannon has written on using a handsaw for plywood, but what about hand planes or any other woodworking hand tools? Can plywood be at home in our hand tool shops or should we keep our edge tools away? Must it always be our drawer bottoms, never the sides? Or is there an approach or technique for handcrafting plywood? So I'm wondering where this idea that plywood can't be used with hand tools comes from. Yeah, um, I don't get it. it. Is, is this just this part of this ridiculous hand tool purist stuff that we can't use plywood? I don't I know. You tell me. Don't. You own the hand tool school. Well, <laughs> yeah, I, exactly. I personally don't <laughs> use a lot of plywood. I, I like natural wood. It's, it has nothing against plywood, although I can say that um, I've worked with some pretty crappy plywood, which has turned me off to plywood. It wasn't until I started working for a lumber yard that I recognized how nice plywood actually could be, and then again, how expensive plywood could be. So, you know, I, I think that 
I don't know what the, the, the impetus for this was, but I see nothing wrong with it. You'll hear a lot of people who will say, oh, that's really bad for your edge tools. The glue and the plywood will yes. screw up your edge tools. That's what sharpening is for, people. I mean, <laughs> but, tools but, will get dull whether you use it on plywood edge or on natural wood. Eventually, tools will get dull. And if you're afraid of sharpening, then you might want to revisit. Well, see, but <laughs> this, I also think a lot of it, thing. like one of the reasons for um, the sort of hobbyist hand tool movement that we see right now is a bit of a romantic notion about woodworking and what hand yeah. tools bring to it. And plywood doesn't fit into that, that mold. It doesn't fit into that world very well. Uh, you know what I mean? Just because it is yes. a mass manufactured product, you, you know, so chances are if you're, if you're gravitating the hand tools and you've got that little sort of romantic thing in the back of your mind as to part of the reason why you're doing it, you're probably also not a big fan of plywood. Yeah, very possible. You know? But as a good example, you know, I've been using a lot of plywood lately in my shop remodel and I put up all of this. Uh, one wall is solid sheet of plywood. The other three walls in the shop are only two. Like it's like wainscoting. It's only to about the the four foot level. And mm-hmm. then I've got a chair rail that goes over top of that. And putting that cap rail in, I've had to pull out a block plane and plane the top edges of the plywood because my floor is not perfectly level. And there's a couple of areas where the plywood panels join together where they're not at the same height. And I'm trying to put a cap rail down on top of that. And, you know, I, I didn't even think twice about it. Pulled out the block plane and just went at the edge of the plywood. Um, is the glue, I don't even know if the glue is actually dulling it. I think it depends upon what type of glue is used, what type of panel it is, import domestic, yada, yada, yada. I never really thought about it, um, but I have absolutely no issue with it. Same thing with hand sawing plywood. You would hand saw plywood the same way you would use a table saw. Choose the right blade, you know, the right pitch, the, the right tooth geometry, and you can get perfect, you know, tear out free cuts with a hand saw, just like you could with, you know, a, a, a dedicated circular saw blade for plywood and either a track saw or a table saw. So, you know, I don't, I don't see that there's any issue with it or not. In fact, I think you'll find a lot of people, he says, you know, must it always be the drawer bottoms and never the sides? Well, going back to Mark's idea, point of the romantic, you know, hand tool user, I think even those people would have a hard time using plywood as a drawer bottom. You know, it's got to be glued together and, and sure, you know, yeah. milled with a, a, a raised panel on the bottom or whatever. Um, I I think you'll see more and more people integrating plywood into their designs as a design element. You know, using the plywood for drawer sides because of its dimensional stability and not even thinking twice about it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's only those of us that think we should be worried about doing this that are actually making a point about should should I not use plywood? Right. So I, again, I see no problem with it whatsoever. If in fact it's not good for our edge tools, you know. That's what the water stone or the sandpaper or the grinding <laughs> wheel is for. Exactly. Sure. Yeah, I, I've been doing it for years. In fact, uh, that large cabinet that I just finished up, that bathroom cabinet, uh, I ended up breaking out the block plane because I was having a hard time dialing in the uh, I, the dimension on the plywood back. And I didn't want to keep going to my table saw and bumping it over, you know, a hair of an inch there. So I just kind of grabbed that and did it. So I had no problem with it. And I've done it plenty of times on much, on much larger panels too. It's It's a great way to just sneak up on that final dimension to get the perfect fit so cool interesting all right well i guess that just about does it for us here uh you know you can support the show if you want to 
Sweet! Uh, yeah, Matt, even you, if you wanted to. Wouldn't make a whole lot of sense, but if you wanted to... You <laughs> I like to give back where I can. You could go to woodtalkshow.com and uh, look at those links in the left-hand column and do a recurring donation in a very small amount or a one-time donation, uh, like the folks at the top of the show did, and we always appreciate that. You could also buy a Wood Talk t-shirt at twwstore.com, and uh, you could leave us a review on iTunes if you want to. Just look us up in the store, click that five-star rating. I don't have any to read today. Uh, was a little pressed for time but we'll get to those next week and matt how about you give them that contact info and we'll get out of here all right folks do you have a comment a question or a topic suggestion there's several different ways to contact us you can leave a voicemail on skype our username is wood talk online please don't keep calling back and hanging up and calling back and hanging up because it really really uh, it confuses mark it makes me think i have more friends than i do exactly and (laughs) we don't want it we don't want him getting kind of overwhelmed by that you can also leave us a voicemail you can use our voicemail line at 623-242-5180 same rules apply please email us at woodtalkonline at gmail.com or you can leave us a comment on our woodtalk facebook page and if you're ever looking for the show notes or downloads from today's show or previous episodes uh, you're going to find those over at woodtalkshow.com beautiful Well, thanks for listening, everybody, and we will catch you next time. See you. Bye. Adios. This podcast is part of the Frog Pants Studios Network. For more information about this and other shows, visit frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there.